Well, we saw last time in chapter 2 the two spies that went in and found Rahab, a prostitute of a condemned people. But yet she believed the Lord and we find that she ended up becoming the great-grandmother of King David, eventually the great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus Christ according to the flesh. And uh, we see that salvation has begun. And uh, they sort of, the spies came back and got Joshua excited saying, you know, all the inhabitants of the lands, their hearts are fainted within them because they know better than we know that we're going to have victory. And they were greatly encouraged. And in chapter 3, then Joshua rose early in the morning. As we go back through Exodus and Numbers and so forth, we see repeatedly that Joshua was one that got up early to seek the Lord. Joshua was one that stayed late in the tabernacle to seek the Lord. That Joshua was a man very much dedicated to waiting on the Lord, hearing from the Lord, receiving from the Lord. And uh, we find in the New Testament that Jesus also, the New Testament Joshua, you know, Jesus is Greek for Yahshua, the Hebrew. Joshua is English. Joshua is the name Jesus. Interesting, Moses, the law, could not take them into the land, but Joshua, Jesus, not by the law, but by the promise, brought them into the land. And so Jesus, also in the New Testament, often rose up early to seek the will of the Father. And they set out from the Acacia Grove. The word in Hebrew is Shittim. It's probably better to say Acacia Grove. And... Uh, they came to Jordan. So they've been camping along the Jordan River, which is in the country of Jordan, or on the east side of Jordan. And uh, they've been there for quite a while now. He and all the children of Israel, and they lodged there before they crossed over. So it was after three days that the officers went through the camp. They commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests and the Levites bearing it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. This was the way the Lord had set it up. As you remember, the tabernacle would be broken down. The outer wall would be broken down. And the whole tabernacle would be broken down. And, of course, the holy articles like the Ark of the Covenant, the menorah, and so forth, would be covered up by the, the children of Aaron, the children of Korah in particular, and, uh, and then they would begin to move out. And as they began to take all the articles of the tabernacle and then burying the, art, the tabernacle itself, all the children of Israel would then, in a very orderly rank and file, according to their tribes, also begin to follow. And this is how they had been traveling through the wilderness for 40 years. But now they've just sort of been waiting there three, three days. And they're waiting and they're waiting have you ever noticed the Lord makes you wait? <laughs> Have you ever noticed that it's God's way to make us set before him in anticipation? To, to be to all sensors, hearing, seeing, touching, feeling are all at its peak. To hear what the Lord might say. And after three days, the officers came and said, when you see the ark pass by. Now, you guys remember what the ark is, right? The ark, it's really just a box, sort of a piano bench, if you would, about that size, not much bigger. It wasn't huge. 
The, the key thing of the box that was made of acacia wood was the lid. The lid was solid gold. It was called the mercy seat. The lid had two angels facing one another, the sheriffim facing one another. In the middle of that bench, if you would, it represented the very throne of God. In Revelation, we see that the sheriffim are flying around the throne saying, Holy, 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 nonstop. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord our God. And, and, and the whole earth was full of the glory because of these angels. And there the Lord was upon the throne. When the high priest once a year would make atonement for the people, he would go into the Holy of Holies, the only time of the year he did. And he would take the blood and he would dump it on the mercy seat in between these two golden sheriffim. And um, there their sins would be covered for a year. And so really only the high priest would ever see it. When the children of Korah were to carry it, they had special um, tarps they were to put over it, but they couldn't look at it. They were to walk backwards and they were to put it over it, covering it without ever looking at it. And it had rings along the sides and then the pole would come out. So the only thing they would ever see is the end of the poles coming out from underneath the tarp and they would carry it. Although it was not a huge box, they estimate the gold to make the mercy seat would be about 700 pounds. And then you have the ark that was also covered in gold. So we're talking something that was pretty heavy. But yet, uh, he said, when you see the Ark of the Covenant. Now, this is sort of interesting because no one ever saw the Ark of the Covenant. They weren't to see it. Later, we're going to actually see some guys that decide to take a look at it and they get killed. But um, it almost seems here that it's uncovered. Uh, It doesn't say it is. But it almost seems at this time that God's saying, uncover, if you would, my presence. And of course, the thing was solid gold. You can imagine the sun hitting it and, and just the incredible brilliance of it. And of course, it represented the presence of God. And so I, I wonder, I'm speculating, but I wonder if they, God didn't say, don't cover it up, guys. Just go grab it out of the Holy of Holies and start walking with it. Carry the ark and let all the people see this glorious piece of furniture, replica, if you would, representing the very presence of God. But then he also gave them another instruction in verse 4. Yet there shall be a space between you and it about 2,000 cubits by measure. We typically go with a cubit of 18 inches. So 18 times 2,000, that'll give you a bunch of feet, which gives you about 1,200 yards. There's 1,760 yards in one mile. So we're about 600 yards short of one mile. So it's about two-thirds of a mile. That's a pretty good distance, isn't it? He's saying be the closest person next to the ark. You need to give them about two-thirds of a mile in between it. Don't start encroaching. Don't get too close. Why? He says, do not come near it that you may know the way by which you must go 
And also, for you have not passed this way before. In essence, he's saying, make sure you have a clear following of the Lord. That, that you're not so close that all of a sudden he's making a right and you're, you're not, where did it go? I can't see it. I can't see over the people's heads. That God wanted it clear that everybody, even though there were millions of people, that everybody could see the ark. And again, this is why I think it was uncovered. Because if it was just covered with a tarp, you know, you're two-thirds of a mile and you're looking at some gray or, you know, tan tarp, it would be hard to see it. But yet if the gold was beaming in the sunlight, wow, you could see this glare, this clear glory, if you would, of the gold radiating in the sunlight. But he, but he says, give space. Because I want to make sure that you are on the right path following. You know, here's a real key in Christianity. You never, ever, ever want to get ahead of the Lord. That is the most miserable place to be. To be out in your own energies, your own flesh, total sincerity, total love, trying to do it all with all your heart. But yet God is just not in it. And you're just saying, God, it's such a wonderful plan. Please bless it. And God is just saying, I'm not in that. It is so key that we follow what the Lord is doing. We join him in what he is doing. There's only one way that can ever happen, and that's if we wait on the Lord. Here for three days, if you would, they were waiting on the Lord. Setting still. Nothing else to do. Just waiting. We know we're getting ready to go. And, and what's Isaiah 40 says? Wait on the Lord. You'll gain strength. You'll be able to walk. You'll be able to run. You'll be able to fly. Not growing weary. But clearly having walking in the strength of the Lord. And so as you wait on the Lord, what's going to happen God's presence is going to clearly lead you. There's people that often say, you know, just get out there and start doing something. You know, being following the Lord's like a ship. You know, if a ship is tied to the dock, you, you can't go anywhere. Just get it out in the ocean and, and once it starts moving, you know, then you can figure out what God's will is and, and, and make it happen. That is just a horrible analogy. The Bible says over and over again, wait on the Lord. Be patient. Those who have faith, faith, the Bible says, won't make haste. And uh, it's, it's hard. It's hard, especially when you are ready. You have energy. You, you have motivation. You're, you're excited. You want to see the Lord use you. You want to see the Lord move. And in essence, he's saying, just continue in a place of prayer, meditation, being sensitive to my spirit, wait. And then, in the midst of your waiting, there's going to be a clear presence of God, a clear leading of God. And even then, don't say, God's here, and run out in front of him. I've had dogs that I've had before that, that want to lead you. Have you ever had those kind of dogs? 
It's like you're holding on in there, uh, you know, under that bush and chasing that. It's just, it's miserable. But if you've trained a dog right, he's next to you. There's a lot of slack in the leash and he's at your hill. And you're the one going for a walk and he's joining you for the walk. And, and it's enjoyable. In essence, we just need to be behind the Lord, joining him in his journey. And as we join him in his journey, it's a, it's a wonderful, blessed place to be. Behind the Lord, behind his presence, behind his power, behind what he is doing. And it's not just for us, but for everybody else. Because as they see you keeping your space, waiting on the Lord and following the Lord's leading, it gives them a clear pattern as well. And the Lord basically says, you have no idea which way I'm going. (laughs) And I'll tell you what, that's very true about God. You, You would never in a zillion years figure out what he's thinking. You, you, just as you think, ah, I think he's going to turn right, he turns left. Oh, I think he's going to go straight. You'd never know. God's thoughts are beyond our thoughts. And, and to try to estimate or predict what he's going to say or do next, you will be sorely uh, disappointed because we have no idea, idea which the way the Lord is leading us. So we get on and Next week in the next chapter, you know, Joshua is trying to figure out how to conquer Jericho and he's coming up with his plans and the Lord stops him and says, hey, I'm the commander of the Lord's army, not you, Joshua. Here's the plan. And the Lord comes up with a plan to conquer Jericho that Joshua in a zillion years never would have thought of. We see with Jesus over and over again, they had no idea what he was going to do next. Takes... 5,000 men plus women and children out in the middle of the nowhere. Takes a few little loaves and fish and breaks it and feeds the multitude. Starts walking on the water <laughs> across the Sea of Galilee. We didn't see that coming. I mean, we, we cannot predict what the mind of the Lord is. We need to keep our distance, keep our eyes on his glory, on his presence, and keep that spirit of waiting upon him. And in verse 5, Joshua said to the people, Sanctify yourself, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. They have done this, remember back in Exodus 19, they washed their clothes and they, if you would, went through some different washings of purification. And and, in the essence of washing and in the essence they were preparing their hearts to say, God, if there's anything that's offensive to you, please Get it from me. Forgive me. If there's anything that I haven't confessed and repented of, I want to do that. I, I want to be sanctified or consecrated. I, I want there nothing, to be nothing between you and me. I want to be just a pure, holy instrument for your use. I want to be a person sanctified, set apart, a tool in the hands of the Master. And in essence, that's what he's saying. Every one of us need to be Ready for God's use. Starting tomorrow, the Lord is going to begin doing wonderful things amongst those who are what? Sanctified, set apart. Now Joshua spoke to the priest saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over before the people. 
So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. And so here it comes. It's big Ark and the guys coming and several priests carrying it. And oh, the people are, oh, look at it, it's coming, it's coming. All the kids are coming out of the tents and they're looking, making sort of a, a parade route as they're heading out of the tabernacle, heading, walking somewhere. And then the Lord said to Joshua, verse 7, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that I, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. So right now, you've just been Joshua the sidekick, <laughs> the quiet guy, ministering to Moses, but yet not really in the limelight, not really seen as, as the leader type. Again, Moses... Type A personality, very uh, uh, charismatic individual. Joshua seems to have none of those characteristics of a, a natural leader, uh, more of a, a shy, uh, withdrawn type of person. But God is saying, I am going to exalt you in front of the people. I'm going to make your name great as I did Moses, that they'll respect you as they did Moses. And in verse 8, you shall command the priest who bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying... When you have come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. Now, you've got to understand something about Israelis. They were not a water people. A matter of fact, to this day, they're really not a water people. They're a land people. <laughs> they're not big into swimming. They're not big into boating. They're not big into having a navy. And so when you talk about going into the water, that is a very scary thing. Especially if you're carrying something that's weighing several hundreds of pounds. But God is, is in essence saying to them, to enter into the promised land, you've got to begin with a step of faith. And let me tell you something, guys. Whatever area of your life you want to see God's will, there will always be a scary step of faith. There will always be the leading, clear leading of the Lord, but at the same time, it's a step of faith. God spoke it. Now, let me under, let's make it understand. We're not talking about presumption. I, I've seen people say, well, I'm just going to go do this by faith. And it's like, did God tell you to do that? Well, no, but I'll just go do it because it seems sort of crazy and radical and God will bless me because it's crazy and radical. Walking by faith is not something crazy and radical. It could be God tells you to do something crazy and radical, but it's always got to be clearly a word from the Lord. And so here, again, this is the word of the Lord has come to them to go down to the water and then to go stand in the Jordan. Now we're going to find out here in a second that this is the springtime when Mount Hermon and all the snow is melting and the Jordan River is flooded. Now, uh, today you will not find this to be an issue because we understand much more about the hydraulic study of our planet. And we have cement <laughs> and we can make dams. And we can, you know, put cement in right places to, to negotiate the water and keep it at a steady flow. Also, you won't find that in Israel today because 
You have two countries, the nation of Israel and the nation of Jordan, both sucking all the water out of the Jordan, not really leaving much left to even reach the Dead Sea. And it's a huge, huge problem right now because the Dead Sea is lowering and lowering and lowering. If you go over on the Dead Sea on the Israel side, the beautiful hotels that used to be right on the beach now are like a quarter mile away. And people really don't want to go to these hotels to have to walk a quarter mile down to the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea also, because of its minerals, is the leading uh, economic company of Israel and also of Jordan, making all kinds of salves and lotions and so forth. But it's, it's unfortunately, uh, going down very, very quickly. The only solution they've come up with, and it looks like it's going to happen. It sounds crazy. But they're actually going to make a giant pipe all the way over to the Mediterranean Sea, suck the water out of the ocean through these pipes uh, hundreds of miles, and then put it into the Dead Sea to fill it back up. And uh, it's a pretty radical thing, sort of like the California aqueduct, pretty radical thing. But they're, they're now going to do that. Uh, there's a, you know, Israel says they're going to do it. Uh, Jordan says they're going to do it. Uh, Egypt, Jordan said they're going to do it. I mean, there's all kinds of people saying this is a real serious issue. We need to make sure it, it gets water to it. Um, but nevertheless, at this particular time, the water would flood as much as a mile wide. Have you ever been next to a river that's flooding? It's a scary thing. The water's coming very fast. So he's asking them to go down to floodwaters, a mile wide about. And in verse 9, So Joshua said to the children of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. In verse 10, Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will uh, without fail drive out from before you all the ites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jubasites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over, notice, before you into the Jordan. This is going all the way back to Exodus, the promise that God gave to Moses. I will surely go over before you. I and my presence will take you into the land. And in verse 12, Now therefore take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man from every tribe, and it shall come to pass as soon as the souls of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off, and the waters that come down from upspring, they shall stand at a heap. So we don't know how far they had to walk. Here they are walking out, maybe to their top of their ankle, maybe to their knees, maybe up to their necks. But here they are having to walk out into the Jordan. And God said, I will then stop the waters into a heap. Sounds familiar, right? It's very similar to the Red Sea story. When they crossed over on dry ground, and again, 
What did he say to Joshua? I'm going to exalt you this day as I did Moses. And here is by crossing through waters on dry ground. And so um, there he says, I'm going to pull him up into a heap. And so it was when the people set out from their camp to cross over the Jordan with the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. As those who bore the Ark came to the Jordan, the feet of the priest who bore the Ark dipped in the edge of the water for the Jordan overflows all the banks during the whole time of the harvest. The waters which came down from the upstream stood still and rose in a heap. Notice here, though, very far away. That is at Adam, the city that is besides Zeraton. Uh, the best guess of the archaeologist's day is about 19 miles away from where they were at. And so it would be interesting that they themselves, it seems like when they went through the Red Sea, it's like the waters were right next to them, you know. They're walking through, looking at the fish went by, you know. But here, the waters are 19 miles away probably, a good distance very far away. But again, the water's flowing, it's flooding. So I, I just sort of imagine the water's just sort of getting higher and higher and higher and higher and higher each moment they're crossing over. Um, it'd be interesting to see how this exactly would play out. Uh, I guess we've got to wait for Hollywood to make a movie of this part, huh? I don't know. And uh, anyway, on the other side, the waters that went down into the Sea of Arabah, or the Salt Sea, or the Dead Sea, they fell. So on the other way, there's no water at all. Flip Fish flopping around, just complete nothing. Just looking down the river, and it's all dried up. They were cut off, and the people crossed over opposite Jericho. So how long this took, we don't know. We don't know if it was a few minutes. We know there's two, three million people. So I got a feeling those priests are standing there in the middle of the Jordan for probably hours while everybody and their cattle and everything are crossing over. And of course, uh, to the left of them, down towards the Dead Sea, it's dried up as far as the eye can see. So it's not like they had one little narrow gap they had to cross through. In essence, all the children of Israel would just cross over anywhere they wanted uh, because it was all dried up all the way down the way. And it says in verse 17 that the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on, notice here, not muddy, sloppy goop, but on what? Dry ground. So as they went into the water, their feet are getting wet. But as they're standing there, they realize, I'm not standing in muddy water. I am standing on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel crossed over on what? Dry ground. Again, this, this is truly a, a miracle of God. He didn't just stop the waters, but he dried up the rivers until they went across on dry ground till all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. In chapter 4, it came to pass when all the people had completely crossed over the Jordan that the Lord spoke to Joshua saying, Take for yourself twelve men from the people, one man from every tribe. And command them saying, Take for yourself twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet stood firm. You shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where you lodge tonight. 
And Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the children of Israel, one man from every tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan. Each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, saying, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. And these stones shall be for a memorial to the children of Israel. For how long? Forever. So God is is saying here very clearly, understand that you're in a time period where God is moving and spectacular, and radical, and magnificent ways. And it's going to be in your heart. You guys have been eating on the manna. You've been drinking the water from the rock. You've seen the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. You've seen the miracles of God's hand destroying your enemies. You've seen the the, the presence of God in your generation. But God, in essence, is saying, this is a unique dispensation of time. Many of the people that were alive were children when they left Egypt. So they saw, even through the hand of Moses and Aaron, the mighty plagues that God brought on Egypt. Many of these people were children when they walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. And so some of these people have just spent their entire childhood in just amazement of God. They've grown up their whole life under the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. They've spent their whole life eating the diet of manna. And God is saying there is a time when I'm not going to necessarily be working in such an overt, outward way. I mean, God doesn't do miracles to, to cause us to enjoy the magic show. He does them for a reason. But once they're in the promised land and they're farming and they're being blessed, there's not going to be a need for the miraculous hand of God in the way that they've seen it over these 40 years. But he wants them to, to, to understand that the next generation need to be in much in awe of God as you are who have experienced this. You know, it's an interesting thing if you study church history. You see the first, you see that revival, that move of God like we've seen in Calvary chapels. And and, and it's a powerful move of God. I mean, radical salvation and, and the gifts of the Spirit and People being baptized in the Spirit and speaking in tongues and prophecies and and works of miracles and healings and and just phenomenal things. It was an interesting, a sociologist did a study from the, the Wesleyan revival. And when Wesley and Charles Wesley and George Whitwell began to preach there in England, tens of thousands of people would show up. It was funny, they, they, they loved George Whitfield so much, they wanted to build him a, a church which he could preach in. They, they built a building that seated 7,000. 
And it wasn't even big enough for the prayer meeting. (laughs) They couldn't even have a prayer meeting in it. Because when George Whitfield preached, there was just a minimum 25, 30, 40,000 people that showed up. So they just did it out in the middle of the farmland. And so they built this building and it just never worked for anything. It didn't even work for their prayer meeting. But it was just a, a mighty move of God. But it was all of these people that had never really heard the gospel. The, you know, the rich people in the Anglican church and so forth. It was this higher church thing going on. But the, the average Joe, the majority of the population, had never heard of the gospel of grace. And, and, and by the hundreds of thousands, they came to the Lord. It came to America, and it was called the Great Awakening with George Whitfield and, and Jonathan Edwards. And it was a mighty move here in the United States as well. But he noticed this, that, that your basic alcoholic, drug addict, thief, prostitute, that got saved in that Wesleyan revival, when they got saved, they came to their right mind. They began to be honest and hardworking and, and, and faithful to their spouse. And, and, and they began to get more educated. And, and within one generation, their children were, not, were living in the middle class. They were living uh, an established, fairly well-off life. But yet they had no understanding of where the parents had come from. They, they didn't have that radical born-again experience that their parents had had. And thus the, the revival began to tell off. And then it had another wave. And uh, I'm not going to go into it tonight, but... Here, God is in essence saying, I know you guys are going to be convinced after today. (laughs) Many of you guys are already convinced. You were in Egypt. You went through the Red Sea. You've been with me for 40 years in the wilderness. This is just like, ah, you know, walking across another, you know, big mass of water on dry ground. Yeah, that's just the kind of stuff we do. You know, that's our everyday here, along with God. But the children that aren't going to know, remember that or have not been alive yet. It is essential as it is for you today to understand and see the hand of God that they also have that same sense of the power of God. So build up these stones. Why? So you can go look at these stones and get your photograph? No. So your children will be inquisitive and ask, Wow, these are some radical stones. They're huge and they're soft. They're not like the other stones around here. Uh, looks like water's been washing over them and smoothed them all out. And, and there's some really cool looking colors in these rocks. And, you know, how, how, how do you think these rocks got here? And the answer would be, you know what? Your grandpa, your great-grandpa, your great-great-grandpa, whatever it might be. He picked that up in the middle of the Jordan River during the springtime, the flooding season. Impossible. How could he get down there in that river? God dried it up. It wasn't wet. It wasn't moist. It wasn't gooey. It was just a big, giant, dry stone. And he walked out of there on dry ground. And and all 12 men of the leaders of each tribe stacked these stones here that I can tell you about the wonder 
of God and the great deliverance from Egypt and how we had to step out in faith and walk by faith in order to enter into the promised land. And and we are here because God's presence went before us and he brought us in to this place that we're at. And you have been experiencing the blessings of God, of his goodness. Will you say, man, this is a great plan. Well, we get to the book of Judges and guess what? Not even 40 years goes by. And these people's children not only don't know these stories, they don't have any knowledge of God at all. The people got so excited about their prosperity and their houses and their farms and their wealth and and everything. They just had no need to pray. They had no need to seek God. They had no need to worship God. And their children grew up completely ignorant of God. But here, as much as crossing over the Jordan, there was a second command equally as important that the parents, in particular the fathers, would instill in their children the knowledge of what God has done as a memorial. Well, in verse 8, And the children of Israel did so, just as Joshua commanded, took up the twelve stones from the midst of the Jordan as the Lord spoke to Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, and carried them over with them to the place where they lodged, and they laid them down there. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan in the place where the, the feet of the priest who bore the Ark of the Covenant stood, and they were all there, they are there to this day. So even in the midst of the Jordan, there's a big giant chunk of rocks uh, that... According to the writing of this time, they were still there, the very, marking the very location where the priest stood. So it's like as you're looking at the Jordan most of the year, it's like, wow, look at all those rocks in the middle out there. Because most of the year, it's just a creek. It's like, yep, that's exactly where the priest stood, right there, when they were holding the ark and everybody crossed over. And in verse 10, So the priest who bore the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the the people. According to all that Moses had commanded Joshua, and the people hurried and crossed over. And it came to pass when all the people had completely crossed over that the ark of the Lord and the priest crossed over in the presence of the people. And the men of Reuben and the men of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over, armed before the children of Israel, as Moses had spoke to them. About 40,000 prepared for war, crossed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. And guys, if you, if you remember the, the, the counting of the people of, of uh, Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, it would take you to ride around almost 137,000 men should have been crossing over. You didn't have 137,000 men. You had 40,000 men. This was in complete disobedience. But now the water shuts behind them and they're separated between them and their family as they're to go and help the children of Israel get the land. So it's sort of a quick little note, but it's a very sad note. Uh, Not even a a third, about less than 30%, less than 30% made it. And in verse 14, on that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel and they feared him as they had feared Moses all the days of his life. Then the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Command the priests who bear the ark of the testimony to come up from the Jordan. Joshua therefore commanded the priests, saying, Come up from the Jordan. And they came to pass when the priests bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord, had come from the midst of the Jordan, that the soles of the priests' feet touched the dry land, and the waters of the Jordan returned to their place 
and overflowed all its banks as before. That would have been a radical thing. They stepped ashore and all of a sudden, whoosh, there it is behind them. And the people came up from the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month. They camped in Gilgal at the east of the border of Jericho. Notice the day, guys. We're on the 10th day of the first month. Four days from now would be the feast of the Passover. Note Gilgal. It's going to become a very common place, a very famous place. They would have the first Passover there. Um, Oh, all kinds of very, very important things uh, took place there in Gilgal. Eventually, Elijah and Elisha would have a school of the prophets there. Uh, David would rally the men there when the coup of Absalom was over. Uh, Many other very important things would happen there at Gilgal where these stones were stacked up, uh, where they met the Lord. It would be a, a place of a memorial. But it became more than just a place of memorial. It became a, a real center spot where they would remember and acknowledge the work of the Lord. And in verse 21, Then he spoke to the children of Israel, saying, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry ground. So when the kids ask their dads, the dads are ready to speak to their kids about spiritual things. You know, you'll never be successful as a parent if you don't get that one thing right. Matter of fact, you can almost get everything else wrong. But get that one thing right. Make sure your kids know Genesis to Revelation before they leave your house. Whatever it takes, take them through the scriptures. And more than that, share your testimony. (laughs) It's not just the father saying, oh, okay, let me find a piece of paper. Okay, let me read this thing, blah, 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 blah. Okay, there. No, it's, it's, it's impressed their hearts what God has spoke to them about it, how God has ministered to them about it, what, what, how God's touched their hearts over the work that God did. The fathers are to share their hearts about the Lord and the things that he has done historically and personally. And then he says in verse 23, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over, as the Lord your God did in the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we all had crossed over, that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Amen? That all the peoples of the earth would know the hand of our God Isn't that just a great way to end here tonight? Just, Lord, this week in our neighborhood where we work, the people we bump into the grocery store, the gas station or whatever, would know of the hand of our God. Lord, let me be a city set on a hill that can't be hidden. Lord, open my mouth wide and fill it that I would speak that word. And that also that they would know that God is mighty. We have a mighty God. And that they would come to fear him, reverence him, submit to him. Your kids, your family, your life, your heart, may that be true. Lord, we thank you again for your word here tonight. And we, as we just go line upon line, precept upon precept, find some weeks some amazing, exciting stories. Other weeks we find just the solid word that we need to hear and know. But we ask tonight, Lord, as we just sort of 
comb over chapters 3 and 4, not huge eventful things as we're going to see in the coming chapters, but at the same time, some just amazingly solid things that you're speaking into our lives. And there's no doubt some here tonight, Lord, that you've been speaking to them about stepping out in faith. Maybe it is getting up early in the morning. Maybe it's in the area of their finances by faith, giving of their tithes and offerings. For some, maybe it's stepping out in faith and sharing, opening their mouth and telling somebody about Christ. Maybe it's stepping out in faith and walking away from a relationship they're not supposed to be in. We know that until we sanctify ourselves and we begin to follow your presence and obedience, and it's going to take a huge step of faith when we do, that we're never going to make it over into the promised land. You are the Lord of all the earth. You are mighty. And how we want people to know you and your great care and great love for us. And Lord, tonight as we just take a couple of minutes as we worship you in song to meditate on these things, we ask that you would just let them ferment deep into our hearts and our minds, that we would leave here prepared heading into this next week for action. Not be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. In Jesus' precious name.